Welcome back, everyone, to The Post-Op. I am your host, Dr. Adam Oppenheimer, and I am here, as always, with Asada Jones. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning back in. We have the Ask Me Almost Anything episode. (laughs) Yes. As I parenthetically reference the almost. I haven't been coached. Asada has not schooled me on these questions beforehand. This is going to be discovery. I'm so excited. <laughs> so, but thank you guys for sending in yes, your listeners. your um, questions and for saying nice things about us on the reviews. Yeah. It's been nice to cheer us on. This has been a really different, unique approach for us to talk about plastic surgery in the ways that we have. And um, I'm just really grateful. I'm grateful for all of you who have tuned in. And it's been a joy really to sit with you every week, Asada, and talk with you about this. So. It's been a great experience for me. It's really nice to be able to be able to work with you and partner up with you to do this. Personally, professionally, it's been pretty cool. fulfilling. Also, it's just fun to be able to have fun, cool conversations with yes. you. But also, I really love the fact that our fun, cool conversations are actively helping other people live better lives, which is like that's what it's one all of about, your, right? One of your main goals of, you know, your A. Jones wellness yeah. mission is is that. Yeah, I wellness think it's cool. Wellness communication. Yeah. How, can, how can I figure out more ways to disperse information to help people live better lives? So thank you for allowing me to do that. That's cool. I think you're living your best life, Asada, because I feel like this is, <laughs> like you in front of a mic is like just, it's the sweet spot. I'm trying to make it my 24-7, it's cool. not going to lie. It's pretty cool. I think you're in the right yes. place, so. Listeners, thank you so much for allowing us to do it more importantly, too, because like, hey, we could just be talking to nobody, but you guys are engaging with us, interacting and letting us know, too, that what we're doing is helping you. So that's really cool. Yes. We're really helping people, Doc. Yeah, it's nice. I I think I'm I'm doing things on a small scale. You know, it's not like this is open heart surgery at, you know, the Brigham or something like that. And I still think this just it suits me very well to have a close doctor-patient relationship with the women who trust me. It just works. It works for me. I'm not going to be out there in the big time doing those major things in in the hospital world, but I still think the individual impact that we have is pretty special in individual lives. So, Oh, yeah. And it's funny, too, that you and I have crossed paths in the way that we have in pursuing the same goal from two different vantage points, you from the health and wellness and fitness side and then me from the surgical side and how those things really dovetail into each other and they really become one it's it's the same idea yeah and it's cool that you and i are still attacking the problem from opposite sides but then we're like oh we're this is we're really connecting and we're we're trying to do both really yeah so bravo to you bravo to you yay us (laughs) man we're awesome wow (laughs) Okay. okay, so let's get into Ask Me Anything. Now that you buttered me up, like built me up a little bit, and now you're going to break <laughs> me You're gonna break me down. I'm going to leave this episode crying with these no, questions. No, you're not. These are going to be great, easy I'm questions. I'm just kidding. I, It'll be good. I don't cry. <laughs> also not true. Very not true. I love true. that. <laughs> okay, so. Nobody believed that. The first question. <laughs> Our first question comes from Nanette, and she emailed us. The question is, everyone on social media, plastic surgery support groups specifically, are obsessed with lymphatic massages after a tummy tuck. 
Is this just the newest fad or do you also recommend getting them? That's a great question. We don't recommend lymphatic massage very often after abdominoplasties. Um, the idea that lymphatic massage is giving you the smooth results after liposuction, I don't think that's true. I think the smooth results from liposuction come from smooth liposuction. But I do think lymphatic massage can help certain women. There are some people who hold on to fluid more, who get a little more swollen or a little puffier. Um, it can also feel very good in the way that massaging sore muscles can feel good. If there's a lot of swelling and buildup after lipo or of after tummy tucks, lymphatic massage can help. So I'm certainly not against it. I just don't routinely recommend it. And I don't find that with the drain use that I do, um, and I think a lot of doctors maybe are not using drains after just liposuction. I use drains mm -hmm. after liposuction. I think that removes a lot of the fluid that otherwise the lymph nodes and the lymphatics are responsible for. So that may be why I don't find it as necessary in my patients, but I think it can feel good. I think it can decrease swelling for those people who hold on to a little more fluid. And I think that it can be helpful. It's just not super common it's more like in a my palliative practice. Palliative care type thing where it feels good. It might help relax you, and yep. therefore it gives benefits that way. Yep, and it may flush out a little bit of fluid um, in the way that compression does. I mean, we use compression a lot after our surgery, so I think it's helpful. I think there's medical benefits to it. It just may be a small part of the equation and may not be necessary for everyone. So, mm -hmm. at least in our practice with my techniques, we don't recommend it. Okay. Great question, Annette. Thank you for that. All right. Our next question comes from Mindy. Another question submitted through her email address. Mindy writes, hi, I just heard the episode tummy tucks. I was wondering what type of pain management is prescribed? Also, I know of some doctors who inject pain meds into the ab muscles to help. Is that something Dr. Oppenheimer does as well? So two-part question. Pain management in general now is really approached from what we call multimodal analgesia, which is in other words, instead of just giving someone a huge amount of one pain med, like a really strong pain pill, for example, which can lead to constipation and nausea, we give patients a smaller, less intense medication across the board. So we use Tylenol, we use muscle relaxers, we use... Um, nerve-related medication, and we use pain meds. So th that's for our mm. tummy tucks. Love Plus, it. we do inject local anesthesia into the incisions, and we inject a long-acting pain medication, Xperil, into the deep muscle plane. Mm. So that's really, there's really probably five different medications that we use in our multimodal anal analgesia um, or multiple different pain meds that we give to help with post-operative pain. The pain levels for a tummy tuck is generally less than a C-section discomfort. Um, so that's kind of a good barometer for some women who understand or have had a C-section before. But Xperil goes deep in the muscles that is injected. That definitely helps. That's a true nerve block and Xperil lasts for three days. In terms of the pain meds we give, Tylenol, Robaxin, which is a muscle relaxant, Ultram, which is an opioid, so that's a pain med, and Gabapentin, which is a nerve-related medication. So getting all of those and spending the first night with us here and getting 
IV pain meds, if needed, that would be for breakthrough pain, really helps us cover our tummy tuck patients. And when the expiral nerve block wears off on day three, because it is a three-day injection that slowly releases Marcaine, which is numbing medicine, over three days, your pain levels by day three are much, much lower. So your requirements for stronger pain meds is, is virtually none. So we can get by with really just Ultram, which is a very mild opioid, and you don't need very strong narcotics in the recovery from tummy tucks. Great question. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that question, Mindy. Our next question comes from Miss Avilas, and she asks, labiaplasty procedures and recovery expectations. What are they? I'm finishing the question. Yeah. What are they? <laughs> so... Labiaplasty procedure, procedure expectations. expectations. So can... Yes, what can you expect? So I often think of Netflix and chill, really. Without the chill, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, like you're chilling. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh well, I use no that chill improperly. for six. <laughs> yeah, I think no chill for six weeks. <laughs> yeah, no chill for six weeks. So is what that's you can the <laughs> the Netflix and no chill, and then Netflix and chill at six weeks. So that's kind of a key recovery. That wow. was a great lead-in. Way to Asana. save that one. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, the the outcome expectation is really depending on your starting point, but most all the time, the goal is the same, to have the inner labia hidden within the outer labia when standing. That's mm-hmm. the main goal that most women would have to, to remove labia minoris show. Mm-hmm. That's possible in the vast majority of ladies, although some women have a slightly wider gap between their outer labia and might have slightly smaller outer labia such that there may be a little band in the middle that you still see when you're standing. Mm -hmm. Um, Usually you need about three days of downtime, ice packs, and just settling down, yeah, Yeah, without working. But going back to classes, going back to school, um, going back to work after about three or four days is doable. and then you're mostly recovered by three weeks. Um, exercise around that time is fine. And then, um, you know, six weeks is like full recovery. Perfect. So. Okay. All right. Our next question is brought to us by Brittany. And Brittany asks, how long does scarring show after a tummy tuck? Great question, Brittany. Forever. That's the, <laughs> that's the downside of a scar. It never really goes away. We haven't gotten to the point of being able to do scarless surgery. They've even tried that in some in some kids um, and in some other surgeries where you can do intrauterine surgeries on, on babies so that there is no scar. Mm. And also some procedures called notes procedures. I'm getting a little off topic, but you can go through, for example, the mouth and do surgery inside the body from a scarless approach where you're not really making an incision in the skin. So Wow, that's wild. Yes, it is. And that's for intra-abdominal surgery. But anytime you are making a cut, an incision on the skin, there is going to be a scar. Mm -hmm. Now, how you scar is much, much more related to your genetics than necessarily than the suture work, although I think the suture work matters a lot. Um, Scars usually look good at a month. They get a little more red or a little darker or thicker at three months. And then by a year, they've settled down a lot more. Um, I used to think that a scar was finished remodeling at a year. And then I've seen scars four years out that look so much better. When patients come back after a tummy tuck, they'll come back for 
breast surgery or something like that several years later, I'll be like, oh my God, your scar looks way better. So I think years and years, and each of us knows the answer better. You burn your hand, you cut your arm, cat scratch, something like that. How long that takes to, to heal for you and how it looks for you um, may be the best indicator of how your scars will heal. But a year is like the short answer. I think years and years, four years maybe, five years, then I think your scar will still continue to remodel. But the beauty of a tummy tuck scar is that it's very hidden. It's right in the bikini line. Mm -hmm. So it would be a lot more hidden. Hmm. Yeah. Great question. Our next question comes from Lucy Elizabeth. What happens if you lose more weight after a tummy tuck? Can six-pack abs be possible? Great question. I think yes is the answer. I think that I definitely have patients who have been bodybuilders. And in those patients, you can see their abs and you can actually see the diastasis through their skin, mm -hmm. which is super cool. Most of the time, you can't see that for most, you know, most humans. We don't see with that low body fat where we can actually see the diastasis. But if you look on my Instagram, there's actually a couple ladies that I show that are female bodybuilders and their before picture, you can actually see the diastasis. And then afterwards when we've repaired it, yes, you can see the six pack. So there's no question that you can definitely get six pack abs even after your tummy tuck. Mm -hmm. um, the real challenge is the amount of weight you lose and whether or not that results in yet even more loose skin. So I usually try to tell people to be very close to a goal weight before their tummy tuck. And that allows us to not have even more deflated or loose skin afterwards. If you lose 20 pounds after your tummy tuck, you may have even more loose skin. But usually 10 pounds either way won't really matter. Gaining or losing 10 pounds after a tummy tuck won't really materially affect the results. But I think a 20-pound weight loss might create a little more loose skin. So it's all a question of how much weight you think you would want to lose after your tummy tuck. And really, if you should wait until you get to that goal weight before doing a tummy tuck so that your results are as optimized as possible. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. That's great. Thanks for the question. Yeah. Okay. So our last question from Instagram comes from G Paulina. If I want to get a breast augmentation, but I fear I will lose the work done when I get pregnant... I'm assuming the rest of the question what should I yeah, do? is what should I do? <laughs> yeah. I usually will tell patients if they're actively trying to get pregnant, of course, to not consider plastic surgery. Or even if they're in that short horizon phase that they shouldn't, um, they shouldn't pursue plastic surgery, even if they think, okay, three months, six months, I'm thinking about starting a family. Um, it's highly variable. If you have more breast tissue, you will have more changes to your breast tissue with pregnancy and breastfeeding. If you have very little breast tissue, then your breast augmentation is very unlikely to be changed much by a pregnancy and by breast milk production and breastfeeding. So I'm asking the question back to them in a way. Yeah. It's what's your time frame for starting a family and how much breast tissue do you have? Because those two questions really will dictate how things look and how your body really responds to the pregnancy um, and how your breasts will look afterwards. Right. So. And it's not like a patient, this is, I'm now, I'm adding on to the question. Okay. Um, a patient wouldn't have to remove their 
um, implants or anything. No. Like they could carry a, a child course. full term and everything. Oh, yeah. And breastfeed and all that for stuff. For sure, yeah. The implants yeah. are behind the muscle. Right. Thanks for your question, Asada. <laughs> <laughs> the implants are behind the muscle. Um, they don't interfere with the milk ducts. They don't interfere with um, the nerves in right. the vast majority of cases to the nipple-reular complex. And so we would have every expectation that you can have a breast augmentation and have a normal breastfeeding process right. and, same and with not the lift, remove right? them. Yeah, and same with the lift as we I talked about as well. As well, but yeah, I mean those are those are deeper questions. Most of the time, I guess deeper questions back to each patient because most of the time, if you're having a breast lift with implants, you're finished with having kids, and so mm-hmm. most of the time you're you're okay with all of the changes that have occurred are done right. occurring. Am I saying that correctly? No, I, I'm sort of I, rambling along. I hear but you. usually you want to wait until all of those changes have occurred before having um, breast surgery. But I do tons of breast surgeries in younger women. Um, and, you know, there is that chance of revision. I usually say there's about a 10% chance of needing another breast surgery over about 10 years. Okay. So that's something to keep in mind that one out of 10 patients will want or need to have another breast surgery. So if you're someone who has a breast augmentation, five years later you have a pregnancy, let's say you had a fair bit of breast tissue before your breast augmentation and we're just looking for more roundness or increased cup size or more upper breast fullness, you would be more likely, I would think, to have the desire to have another breast surgery than if you came in and had very little or no breast tissue. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So... Our last two questions are from me. Okay. So my question to you is, can you talk about one of your toughest cases? And I don't mean toughest as in like the, the you know, the surgery was tough, meaning like there, it was more of a complicated surgery than you expected. Mm, now I'm sweating. Has that ever happened? No? Yeah, of course. Perfectly... Oh, of course. I mean, yeah. I think I think the hardest surgeries for me are the ones that perhaps I didn't do. In other words, saying no to a patient or Mm. not being able to help them or not feeling inclined to help them based on where they're at. Yeah. Emotionally or physically or physiologically. Yeah. Those are the hardest ones because I really want to help everyone and I would like to think that I could help everyone, but I also... For, you know, for example, for health reasons or, or other things like that, yeah. age criteria, um, weight, things like that, that I really want to help people, but I just may not be the right doctor for those people. And they come, right, and they've put in their trust and they've sent in photos and they've gone through the whole process of getting the courage up to come in the door and, and talk right. about their body and talk about something they're insecure about. And so for me... I think the hardest surgeries are the ones that I don't perform. I feel really bad personally that I, that I can't help them. Yeah. Um, that was so not the answer I was expecting, <clears throat> but I, I love the honesty with that. That's, I mean, I didn't expect you not to be honest, but yeah, I like that. Yeah. I think in terms of, you know, there are certainly cases where I try really hard to get the expectations aligned. And I think, we are so good at detecting symmetry or asymmetry that I think some of the harder cases are where there is some type of congenital or birth related just Mm -hmm. 
inborn asymmetries where there's a drooping breast or a much larger breast and there's a big difference between the breasts. Those are some of the harder surgeries that I do in order to gather or get symmetry. Mm -hmm. It's tricky. I, I talked in the last episode about using a needle and thread and I'm, it's sometimes rudimentary in a way using cautery and sutures and what may seem as basic, even though they're advanced medical instruments, they're still basic in the scheme of all of our technologies of say an iPhone. Right. And there's such a huge disparity between what is capable of technology versus what's capable in the real world. Um, and so those are challenging cases for me with symmetry. I sometimes say it would be so much easier if I was just a gallbladder surgeon because then there would just be one organ that I right. had to match instead <laughs> of a paired paired organ. But um, I think those are, you know, generally more challenging okay. cases. So, Well, thanks for that. Sure. I have one last question for you, Dr. Okay. Rob. It is a question that I typically ask on my other podcast, What Makes Me Well, but I think this is going to be the perfect question to end this season. Oh, wow. Okay. My question to you, Dr. Oppenheimer, is what makes you well? And more specifically, what are the well-being tools that you use that allow you to be the successful, healthy surgeon that you are? Okay. Well, there's a you couple things. You have five things. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think... For me, I do so much communicating. I do so much talking that for me, having small windows of solitude is really, really helpful for me. I really get a lot of relaxation from reading. And I actually think that the potential for knowledge and understanding is unbounded, is, is infinite. And so for me, it's... It's an exciting journey and pursuit to to read and to try to understand more and more. Yeah. And there's no amount that I could read or learn or discover in a book that I would be like, well, I've read the last word. You know, I finally did it. And so for me, that's very relaxing. <clears throat> yeah. Um, not sure why I'm finding it somehow hard to talk about myself. I think he <laughs> kind of stumped me on this okay. one. But no, I think... I think reading is key for me. I do think solitude is helpful, even just not necessarily meditating, but just having those down quiet moments. Mm -hmm. um, exercise is huge. We, we kind of talked about that. I used to have an office that was like my own private room that had, you know, chairs and things like that in it. And I just basically got rid of it all for some exercise equipment. And so now when I disappear toward the end of the day or you know a after cases where the day's not done yet I'll be able to sneak away and do some exercise in the in the office to get my mind right a little bit so reading exercise I think those are those are the two main things nice nice all right well thank you Dr. <laughs> Oppenheimer for sharing that bit sure. I know it's a little bit um when I asked that question everyone wants to talk about their profession and like, mm. well, I went to school and I'm able to do this because I went to school. And what I ask isn't about yeah. that. I'm asking about your support system. So thank you for sharing that with me because um, it's a kind of a, a personal question that um, 
Yeah. Um, I'm asking. Yeah, I mean, Boy, I do that a lot. I'm no, pretty intrusive. <laughs> I like it. I think there's the other side of it, of course, and I would be lying if I said that being a doctor, you know, wasn't the answer in some ways. In other words, being a doctor makes me well. It makes me feel good, like I'm living the life that I'm supposed to live mm-hmm. in the way that I think you educating people on wellness and health and being on the microphone is your correct seat on the bus, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I think my correct seat on the bus is being a physician and being a surgeon. And I, I didn't always think that actually about myself. I actually wasn't sure for a while that I was suited in my person as, mm-hmm. as my personality and my sensitivities to being a surgeon. I thought that I had to be more gruff, that I had to be more dispassionate and impersonal Mm -hmm. and tougher, Mm -hmm. (laughs) frankly. And I think part of that comes from my grandfather who was a plastic surgeon and he was very sweet, but he was also much more stoic Mm -hmm. than I am. And, And he used to be able to do things with just an immense amount of focus without really being flappable at all. And I, I guess I've become that way as well, but I I think I had an idea of what a surgeon was supposed to be, and and I saw myself as being a little bit more um, personally involved in mm-hmm. the process. And I've come to realize that there's many ways to go about being a surgeon, and that this actually does work for me, and specifically the type of surgeries that I'm doing and the sensitivities required to do surgeries like an awake labiaplasty or in dealing with moms who have a lot of guilt and a lot of emotional um, sentiment about pursuing plastic surgery and putting themselves into um, the spotlight in their own families and putting themselves first. I think that these sensitivities are actually beneficial instead of harmful, instead of maladaptive, which I thought they were. I was like, oh, maybe... You know, maybe I'm not tough enough in some ways or sometimes, Right. you know, obviously I made it through a surgery residency. So without crying in the corner, <laughs> so I feel like you're tough enough. Yeah. But I think, um, thanks Asada. No, but I feel like it, um, it's been an interesting realization for me to find myself here very different than my grandfather was, but, um, hopefully equally the, the surgeon in a very different way. Yeah. So. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Oppenheimer, thank you so much for answering all of those questions. Listeners, if you have any questions for us moving forward, please shoot them over to our post-op email address. It's thepostop at gmail.com. Um, Dr. Oppenheimer, any last words for the listeners? My last words. Closing out season one. I think that season one was cool. If um, I can say that season two I think will actually be better because what I want to do is feature the patients and I've talked a big game about how the patients are front and center in my world but I think this podcast is going to be a lot more interesting to hear from the moms to hear from the patients who have had breast reductions or breast lifts or breast augmentation to hear about the labiaplasty experience from the patient side what their concerns are, what they have felt, how the process went for them. 
And I think having that in an unfiltered way where we can just have the patients sharing their thoughts, I think that's going to be the next level in education and communication about what plastic surgery really is in the modern era. So I'm grateful for everyone listening in. I'm grateful for you, Asada, for taking me on this tour and co-hosting the podcast with me. Happy to do it. So thank you to my patients, past, present, and future, for your trust. And thanks again, Asada, for helping me with this podcast. You are more than welcome, Dr. Oppenheimer. This has been a wonderful experience. Listeners, it has been wonderful sharing this information with you and hearing how it has empowered you to change your life in some way. We cannot wait to come back for season two. Keep an eye out or keep an ear out for the next episode. As always, if you haven't already been following this podcast on the podcast platform that you're listening on, go ahead and do so right now. So that way when season two, episode one comes out, it's right on your phone and you don't <laughs> and you won't have to think about it. <laughs> Until next time, listeners. Thank you guys. Take care. <laughs>